All right, so I know that you guys have been, uh, you just kicked off a series in Mark, uh, and we're going to continue right on in there. I wanted to, to help Pastor Philip out by not detouring this morning. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to touch on some of the themes that are pretty common to pull out of this passage. Uh, they're, they're right there on the top, but there's some place I want to go that I hope might feel a little bit different Maybe something you haven't considered, uh, maybe something that you haven't seen. I don't think it's necessarily revolutionary, but I know that it comes alongside many of the things that your leadership has been teaching and trying to encourage you in about the Christian life, the Christian walk, and what the Bible teaches us about that. And maybe, maybe how the modern evangelical church has gotten some of that wrong, or at least has missed some of those principles, and so we're going to talk about that uh, really primarily this morning, but let's work our way through the passage. I don't have a ton of notes this morning. I don't have slides for you. It was a little too late to get that all together, but here we are with the Word, and I'm so thankful that when we're in an environment where we can preach from the Word, everything we need is right here. All of the truth is right here, and God can speak to us through that. So let me just read through this entire passage one time, and then we're going to go back and pick through some individual things, and it probably won't be a real long time this morning. I always say that, and then guess what happens? <laughs> yeah, I should stop saying that. Verse 1, and when he returned to Capernaum, talking about Jesus, after some days it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could got not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful this morning for the gift of your word the gift of the freedom to gather in this place and celebrate you, to worship you, to lift our voices in praise, and Lord, as well, to eat from the table of the word. Lord, I pray that you will illuminate it for us this morning. Will, will you allow your words to be spoken and, and not mine, Lord, but reveal to us truth as you've given it to us here in the Bible. Lord, we, may, we, uh, may we make much of you in this moment, and may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, let's bounce right back up to the top. Now, just before this, just to kind of give you a little reminder, we, we have several accounts of both individual healings, like there's a healing of a leper that comes right before this at the tail end of, of chapter 1. But then we also have right before that, we see Jesus in the countryside traveling among the people. Scores, scores of people, multitudes, are now hearing about him. His fame is growing. And there's a passage there that says he actually went into one place and they brought everyone to him who was sick and he healed them all. That's incredible, right? So at the beginning of chapter 2, we find that he's gone back to Capernaum to a place that the Bible says here he went back to home. Now we know the Bible says that, uh, in fact, it literally says the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. So we understand that he like, didn't have a mortgage, uh, didn't have his own house, uh, you know, probably not cutting the lawn in the Middle East anyway, but you get, my, you get my drift. So this, we don't know whose house specifically this was, but it was a place that for Jesus was home. Many scholars uh, surmise that it might actually be the home of John, uh, the disciple, uh, the, the one who uh, Jesus loved, the beloved disciple of Jesus, his best friend, could be. We know, I know Pastor Philip has explained that uh, a lot of scholars believe that this is really Peter's account written by John Mark, but taken from the sermons of Peter and sitting across the table from Peter and hearing the stories of walking and learning and ministering with Jesus. So it could have been Peter's home. But whatever the case, he went to some place that was familiar. And even there, we find Jesus doing what he did so often, which was gathering a crowd because of the notoriety that had grown and in the midst of that crowd, blessing them with his teaching. And so it, the scripture paints that picture here for us in just the first few verses that he's at home, he's at some place that has some measure of comfort to him. The crowds have gathered. They've pressed into the house. They've filled the house. Jesus is sitting among the people some, some way in some fashion. And there is now no longer any room to even get into that place. People are gathered around the windows outside trying to hear. It reminds me of uh, back in the 80s. Um, there was a band called Russia that came out of uh, the Soviet Union. They were a Christian band, and they had a couple of great songs, uh, really, really great music. But I heard them on an interview one time talking about when they were young, living in the cold regions of Russia. You know, the, the Bible was not something everybody had. The gospel wasn't something that everyone heard. And they could remember times that in their village, there would be people who had passed around. And this reminds me so much of the New Testament when we read how the letters of the New Testament were passed from church to church to church. And people would take, somebody had a Bible and they would pull out pages and then they would get sent around to these different remote communities. And when, when the Bible arrived there, just these few pages or a chapter or a book, people would come from the countrysides and fill these homes. And he said sometimes they would be there and there would be so many people that, that you couldn't get close to the house where the reading of the word was happening. But you were touching someone who was touching someone who was touching someone who was hearing the word. And as it was read in that room, they would turn and begin to speak it to one another and just pass it back through the crowd. And out of that, the power of God would move and people would be saved. 
And this environment reminds me of that. People hungry, thirsty for the words of Christ, the words of God himself to speak life into their lives. And so then we see the story here. Uh, he was preaching the word to them, verse 3, and then they came. It doesn't tell us really who they are. Uh, if you look in Matthew and Luke, you'll see this same story. Uh, slightly different versions. One of them doesn't have the, the cutting the hole in the roof and bringing him down, which we'll talk to in just a second. Uh, some of them have, uh, one of them has a little bit more uh, descriptive language about how the event happened, but they're all very, very similar. And I would just say, don't take that to mean that there are discrepancies. Uh, eyewitness accounts are like that, right? If, the, if three of us witnessed the same event and then we're writing it down separately, we would remember different details, but the stories would have the same context and the same, uh, same meaning to them to a great degree. And we see that in the, in the Gospels. Well, we don't know who they were, but they were friends bringing to him a paralytic carried by these four men. Now, when they couldn't get in, you see what it says there? It says that they tried to get in. There was no room. They couldn't. I mean, you think about the configuration of this. Four grown men and a grown man who's paralyzed on a bed or a pallet of some kind, carrying him through the city, getting to this place. And then there's no way for them to get in the door. And I love this part of the story, and it's where a lot of sermons about this focus, and I don't want to spend a long time on it uh, because you probably have heard it before, but if not, it's, it's this great idea that these men loved their friends so much that they took these extra measures, these, these extraordinary measures, to climb onto the top of what was probably a common flat roof. You would have seen it in uh, the, the buildings there of the time, uh, thatched with tile and clay. And, uh, you know, you see the, if you ever watch like Survivor Man and those guys, they're making their outdoor uh, survival shelter and they take, you know, fronds of trees and things like and weave them through wood. It's, it's just like that. And so they climb on top of this thing with their friend and begin to dismantle a section. They somehow have figured out exactly like where Jesus is and they're going to mission impossible the whole thing. <laughs> and that's exactly what they do. They take a hole in that thing and they, they lower him down there in front of Jesus. What an incredible act of sacrifice and love for a friend. What, a, what an over-the-top measure to take. I hope I would be that kind of friend. I hope I wouldn't be the one who arrives and see that, because this is me, there's a huge crowd and I'm like, eh, I'd rather go home, thanks. Uh, it's like, uh, this is fine. But like, uh, my wife is, I almost said dragged, and now I have, encouraged me to go with her to several holiday bazaars in the last few weekends, which was fun. A lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people in close quarters. Uh, if I host a party at my home, I will be over in the corner watching everyone else have a great time. <laughs> That's just how I am. So I hope that I would be the friend who arrives there and sees this huge crowd and goes, all right, this is not going to deter me. I'm still going to press forward because I love my friends so much. And that love is great, but there's something in this story that's even greater. And Jesus names it in just a moment. In verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, 
I think there's a... I mean, we know the passage of Scripture that says faith, hope, and love, right? These three things remain. Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. Of these, the greatest is love. Their love compelled them to take him. But their faith compelled them to not give up because they truly believed in who Jesus was. Did they know everything about Jesus? Probably not. Did they have all their doctrine lined out? Definitely not. Did they understand everything about the Messiah? Did they, did they, did they know all of the prophecies and exactly how Jesus fit into those? Could be, but unlikely. And yet they had heard enough of his miracles. They had heard enough of his teaching. They had either seen him with their own eyes or they had heard the witness of others who had seen them with their own eyes. And they believed there was something about Jesus that could, that could come to bear in this moment. And Jesus calls it faith. The belief in something that I can't quite see, but I know that it's real. And the effects of it will prove who God is. That's faith. Now, I do wonder sometimes, because I'm like this, Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And did they go, what? Is that what they came for? Do you think that was the first thing on their mind? There's like, you know, Joe, look, I know you haven't been able to walk your whole life or you had a terrible accident and you used to be able to walk and now you can't and that's awful for you. But let's go over to Jesus and see if he'll forgive your sins. I'm sure that was not the conversation because in context, remember, right up here, we have Jesus preaching and healing, and healing, and healing, and healing, and that wave of energy and excitement about Jesus has washed into Capernaum. And when these guys hear it, and then they hear the rabble, the noise, the excitement around Jesus in this home teaching, they go, hey, hey, Joe can't walk, and Jesus is like right down the street. Let's go. And then they get there, and Jesus says, awesome, I love your faith. This is great. Great to see you guys. Look at Joe. You're looking great. Your sins are forgiven. I don't know. I don't know how Joe took that, because it doesn't tell us. I don't know. if Jesus' intention here was always to do a little switcheroo like he does coming up here? Probably. Because I trust that he's good. And he had demonstrated himself all these times before this. But the next thing that happens is, is pretty amazing. The scripture here tells us in verse 6 
that some of the scribes, the educated scholars, the rabbis were there listening to his teaching, which happened often. In fact, he was welcome in the synagogue to come and teach. You might remember there was a story when he was like 12 years old. He got lost, separated from his parents, and they went to find him, and he's in the synagogue teaching, and the old rabbis want him to stay because he's teaching them about the word, and it's so magnificent at 12. So you can imagine how this is going here, and the scribes, these, these, these heady intellectual guys who have all this knowledge about the Torah and the, and the scripture as they know it and the history of the people, they're there, they are there listening to Jesus teach. And the, the passage here in verse 6 says that Jesus began to perceive, not that they spoke with their words, but he began to perceive what was in their hearts. And what was in their hearts was like, what? What did he just say? Did he just, did he, did he just forgive that guy's sins? Only, only, only God can forgive sins. That's blasphemy. That's cursed. It says that, that Jesus perceived them in his spirit, that they questioned this within themselves. And so then he spoke out loud. He said, hey, you guys, what do you think's harder? To forgive someone's sins or to tell them to get up and walk when they've been paralyzed for a long time? I don't, that's not necessarily a rhetorical question, kind of. I mean, if you had to answer that, how would you answer it? I'm not, I'm not sure. There's something obviously philosophical and sort of esoteric about your sins are forgiven. There's no real evidence for that, is there? Anyone could say it. Anyone could speak the words, but who has the power to deliver? And so Jesus sets up this, this opportunity to reveal himself in a more full fashion. And so he asks that question, which do you think is harder? And the answer is they're both impossible. They are only possible with God. In verse 10 he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like that. Isn't that cool? So he tells us his purpose is to show his authority. But he also tells us that he's doing it not to show his authority in being able to heal people, but in to doing something much, much more important. A healing that has little often to do with your body, but has everything to do 
with your spiritual being, the core of who you really are. He puts the exclamation point on the event by performing a miraculous physical healing that proves he has the power and authority to bring the spiritual healing. And so the question I want to pose to you this morning is this man who then gets up. In fact, I think it's in Luke. If you uh, read it in Luke, it says very much the same thing, but it also includes that he, the man, got up glorifying God, praising God. So here's my question. Is that man saved in this encounter? I'm just going to let that lay there for a moment. When I say saved, I mean like we tend to understand in modern terms of I asked Jesus into my heart, a phrase that we use. Um, I made Jesus Lord of my life, a phrase that we sometimes use. I got saved, that we say. What happened to this man? Let me ask it in a different way. If this man was not redeemed as we understand that we become redeemed when we follow Christ in this encounter, what was the purpose? I mean, it's great he, he gets to walk again. He loves that. His family loves that. You know, in, in that culture, someone in his condition is an outcast. They're not really welcome and encouraged in the community. They can't work. They can't care for their family. So this is an incredible physical benefit. But what about that? Your sins are forgiven. What sins? To what end? If, it, if it's only the sins up to this moment, and then, Joe... After you leave here now on your great working legs, you're on your own. Hopefully, you'll find salvation somewhere down the road. But for here, it's just right up to this moment. Your sins are forgiven. And after that, uh, I don't know. That doesn't sound like a great miracle. If instead, as I would suggest to you, that when Jesus does these sorts of things, when he looks at the woman caught in adultery and says, rise, who is, there, who is there here to condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He is calling them to the life of a disciple. When he says to this man, your sins are forgiven, it is where his faith that brought him there collides with the grace of God who intends to take this man who appears to be alive but who is actually dead in sin and raise him to life in that moment. And that is what forgiveness does. And it transforms that person. It transforms you and I when we come to that same realization of who Jesus is. The need in our heart, the need in our lives that we come to Christ with faith that says, I know you're the one who can help me when that faith collides with the grace of God, we who were dead in our sin are raised to new life in Jesus Christ. 
And here's what I mean about perhaps the modern evangelical church has kind of gotten it a little mixed up. Maybe this isn't true for you. I know uh, that True North Church is communicating a, a whole gospel message, and I appreciate that so much. It's one of the reasons that we're friends and that Philip and I get along so well because we're, we're, we're journeying towards the same things together. But modern Protestant evangelical thought has a tendency, in my opinion... I think it's borne out by observation to encapsulate salvation at the cross, forgiveness of sins. You notice here that when he forgave the man's sins, that wasn't the end of the conversation. He told him to get up and go home, and he was glorifying God as he went. Something changed. His life on earth from that time forward would never be the same because of this encounter. The paradigm that I grew up in often was so focused on getting someone to make a decision that once they made a decision for Christ, it sort of just stopped. And it resulted in, in churches, the church that I grew up in as a child. I looked around at these folks that I'd known for 20 years of my life, 30 years of my life, and they weren't materially better as people or Christians than they were the first day that I met them. In fact, some of them, and for a season I counted myself among those, some of us were worse. We were more judgmental. We were more unkind. We were more exclusionary. Instead of being open and willing to share the good news and the life of Christ with those around us, we had gates and doors that we put up to keep people out because they didn't measure up to certain standards. I think that's a byproduct of short-circuiting the thinking about salvation. It is not only a rescue from judgment. It is not only a rescue from shame. It is not only the forgiveness of sins, it is also the call to a life of being a disciple of Christ, not someday in the future, but right now, today. At the end of Matthew, we have that great passage, uh, the, the Great Commission, go ye therefore into all the earth and make disciples. And again, in the paradigm I grew up in, the emphasis was so heavily on go, we just saw the Lottie Moon video. We do this at our church as well. It's one of the, the few offerings that we support in that way because we trust where those funds are going through the International Mission Board into the hands of, of missionaries around the world. But a lot of times in those emphases on, on those uh, offerings and then within the life of the church in its more kind of granular state, there was so much emphasis on the go, go and tell, you know, take the tracts out and witness to somebody and get somebody to pray the prayer or say the words or check the box. When in reality, if we take that passage from Matthew, go ye therefore into all nations and make disciples, the, em <laughs> oh, no. the emphasis in that passage, <laughs> you don't want to know what was going on in there. <laughs> the emphasis in that passage is not on the word Go. It's on the word make. 
Who? Believers? Not just believers. Make disciples. And disciples are people who sit at the feet of the teacher, of the master, and soak up everything they're telling them and then go to be like them. And that's the call of this passage. It's not just to walk. It's not just to have the sins forgiven. It is to glorify God. And we glorify God by living as his disciples. Often at our church, hopefully not so often that people are bored with me saying it, but it's possible. I'll remind them that if we just, if we stop at the cross, the forgiveness of sins, which is accomplished in the cross, right? That's, it's a ransom. It's a substitution for payment happens at the cross for our sin. Jesus pays the price. But if we stop there, frankly, it really just becomes a very poignant story about a great man, maybe even a godlike man, who did something extraordinary. But if the resurrection never happens, what's the point? He has to have power and dominion over life itself, or the story really loses its greatest power. See, the gospel is not only for that which is to come when we translate from this life into the presence of God fully. Jesus came to redeem this life, the one you're living right now. He came to invade that, infuse it with his presence and his teaching and his power so that when life brings all the things that it brings, because we know fully well, and I'm sure some of our longtime followers of Christ here will testify. In fact, I'm pretty sure I touched on this when we were at the library together. It doesn't mean it makes it all easy. It doesn't solve all your problems. But he promises us that even when things go wrong, even when we go wrong, even when circumstances push us in directions we never wanted to endure, not only is he with us because we're following him, we're at his feet because we're disciples, but the gospel says, I will take every one of those moments that in any other circumstance would be wasted and I will redeem them for the glory of God. Your life becomes an example of the glory of God. I encourage you this morning as you continue your journey of discovering who is Jesus. Maybe some of you are still trying to answer that question. Who who do you say that I am? Jesus asked. Maybe you're not entirely sure. The book of Mark is an awesome place to really begin to, to uncover that. I encourage you to keep reading through here and and, and ask the Lord to speak to you about these stories and and what he's trying to tell us through these collected works. 
but also True North Church, I encourage you as you go forward to be mindful of the gospel that you're preaching, the gospel that you're teaching in your personal and daily lives. If you have the opportunity to share with someone, don't leave out the component that God's power, the power of Jesus Christ and his saving grace is not only for something long distance and far away, it's for right now. Because the people around us are desperate for rescue and answer in the mire of their lives today. And friends, Jesus is the only answer. Don't neglect to glorify his name with your life that it might illuminate someone else's life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much again just for the word and the opportunity to minister, to speak. I don't know. I don't know if that was very good, but you're good, and so I trust you, Lord, to, to move in us and work in us. Lord, I pray that your promise will ring true that when your word goes out, it never comes back empty. But Lord, that seeds of truth will be planted in our hearts today that will grow. And Lord, will provoke us to deeper devotion and the pursuit of discipleship with you. Lord, we do love you. We praise you. We thank you for every good thing that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.